Uh, well, welcome everybody to this uh, penultimate seminar in this term's media and politics seminar. Um, I can see that by the number of people here that you probably think that Nick Robinson needs no introduction. But in spite of that, I'm going to say just a few words, which is most of you will know Nick Robinson because he's BBC political editor and he's on television every night. What many of you won't know is that he wasn't always a reporter and that he's one of these unusual people who actually uh, moved from the kind of the other side behind the camera in terms of being deputy editor of a program called On the Record many years ago where he used to sort of influence how people on screen reported politics. Then he sort of um, unusually moved from this editorial role in terms of being in a front of camera role, first in the BBC, and then for those of you who have only been looking at him recently for ITV on ITN, and then back to the BBC. So um, you may have the impression, some of you, that they're sort of BBC lifers and the rest, and Nick is sort of, um, is, is actually the rest. In sense, you've spent a lot of your career working for the BBC, but not all of it. That's right. Um, which is the secret of success, actually, in terms of how you succeed in the BBC. If you look at um, <laughs> the current director general of the BBC, um, one of the secrets of his success was that he, didn't, he actually left and worked for somebody else for a while before he came back again. So, Nick, you're going to talk about the election and uh, how you covered it and how you're covering sort of politics since then. And Nick's going to talk for, what, 20 to 30 minutes? Yes. And then John will kick off the questioning and then we'll open up. And we're finished by 6.30, as usual. And the speech, what Nick is saying, well, his comments are on the record, but the discussion is on a Chatham House basis. Lovely. Okay, over Maybe to you, Nick. Because I can be a bit more indiscreet, <laughs> I hope, then, because I suddenly discovered that uh, I did a seminar of this sort a little while ago in which I uh, said something about the coverage of the Iraq War, which I thought was candid and interesting, which uh, then became quite a prominent story in The Guardian, which I was sort of actually quite happy about it after I saw it, but I, I kind of would have liked to have known that that was... Uh, what was going to what was going to happen? Thanks very much indeed for coming uh, tonight. I feel for it, it's only people of an older generation will understand. I feel rather like Ronnie Corbett. In this. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the two Ronnies. If you're under 35, you probably haven't a clue what I'm talking about. Um, uh, let me just before I say what I was going to say about the election, I'll just pick up David's points because those of you interested uh, in the media, either in commenting on it or in eventually going into it, it, it is worth saying that David, who I knew at the BBC when he was editor of the analysis program. And I, for years, did the much more important, but frankly rather under-awarded and under-recognised job of making programmes, producing them rather than fronting them up. And actually, in my experience, the much cleverer people, and I'm not just saying this in a sort of bout of false modesty, it is true, the much cleverer, sharper minds, like Tim Garden, for example, are the people who are behind the scenes making those programmes and doing the intellectual heavy lifting. And in some ways, I miss... Uh, much as I love the job I now do, I do miss some of the intellectual satisfaction that there was uh, from working not only on On the Record, which was the Sunday lunchtime interview programme, and then a pretty heavyweight uh, thought-out analysis of politics, and then later on Panorama. But I got the sense that I ought to move on one occasion when it was revealed that the major government was having secret talks uh, with the IRA. Uh, I had been making a film called Talking to Mr Adams, which was about the fact that the then leader of the Irish SDLP, John Hume, was having talks with Gerry Adams of Sinn Féin, and we were doing a programme saying, was this a good thing, and could it one day lead to this extraordinary possibility of the government talking to Sinn Féin? Uh, we, I got a phone call from the head, then head of press saying, 
at the Northern Ireland office saying the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland would like to freshen up the interview that he's just done with you. I, I remember saying, I'm, I'm not really familiar with this notion of freshening up an interview. <laughs> <laughs> was like, do you mean do it again? Is that what you mean? He said yes, and I, I said, I remember vividly, I said, you're bloody talking to them, aren't you? Uh, referring to the IRA. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I, I can't tell you that, but there is an important newspaper story appearing tomorrow. And I remember saying to him, on the Richter scale, what is it? It's a great joy of the job. And he said, 12. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I didn't laugh. I said, no, no, you see, there are only 10 points on the Richter scale. <laughs> he said, I know. And it, was indeed, it was indeed the revelation that there were secret talks going on uh, via a third party with the IRA. Uh, and the end of this story is that I, we flew to Belfast. I was David Dimbleby's producer. We did a live programme in which the Secretary of State's entire career was on the line. He had effectively, it, it, it would seem lied. He did a brilliant performance and my job was to talk into David Dimbleby's ear. And at the end of this very exhilarating moment of history and excitement, I said to David, I'm really sorry, I was probably just a bit hyper. I'm sorry I spoke so much in your ear. Now I have people talking in my ear. It's quite an irritating thing. He said, I don't, I don't think I heard anything you said. <laughs> you know what, I've been pressing the wrong button for an hour. <laughs> I decided I'd better do his job instead of mine. Now, having done that job, let me just reflect a little bit on not just the election, but the coalition. And then I want to end with some thoughts about what, about the future of political broadcasting. And in particular, the assumptions that anybody in a British context lives with, grows up with, namely that impartial broadcasting, the notion of broadcasting as something different from print and the internet, regulated and required to have political balance and just ask some questions about whether that necessarily will survive, should survive and what the lessons are from abroad. In a sense I know that this is an international <coughs> audience. I'm hoping that in response to some of the things I've got to say we'll hear your experiences and your insights into how it works in other countries. Um, the first I think reflection, candid reflection I want to make on television coverage of the general election was how badly we got it wrong when you look a year before. Picture the scene, it's the MP's expenses crisis. And do you remember what was the conventional wisdom during the MP's expenses crisis, looking ahead to the general election? Uh, I remember it because I have a horrible feeling I probably parroted it, which was the conventional wisdom was the outrage with conventional politics would mean there'd be a low turnout, a rise of extremism, and victory for a whole series of independents. These were brilliant predictions, except for not one of them actually came about. And it is a useful warning, uh, uh, and I repeat it on the record as a useful warning to myself about the dangers of thinking you know uh, where politics is going to go. Because in fact, as I say, none of those things happened. And I would suggest to you that in part, I wouldn't want to overstate that, it, but in part that was because this general election was the first real television election. Bizarre to say it, but six decades after the creation of BBC television, we actually had an election made for television. All the previous elections before that had not been because of the absence of the television debates. You could have them in Afghanistan, you could have them in Iraq, you could have them in Germany. You had them all over the world, of course, in the United States, but you didn't have them in Britain. I, I, I'm not going to talk at length about the debates because I know you had Alistair Stewart recently who, who chaired them, but if anybody's got questions about them, 
I'll answer. But I raise them partly to say how different it was as a general election, unlike any election I covered. For good and ill, of course. Good, because it felt to me like there was a real focus through those debates for millions of people on the choices that they faced. Bad, because the distorting prism of personality uh, was clearly all the more powerful uh, as a result of having three debates between three leaders. And, and the build-up to the debates and the post-match analysis, as it were, crowded out coverage not just of other people, but coverage of other issues as well. Um, but I think what was interesting about the debates is another bit of conventional wisdom, which I think is wrong, and I wanted to try and puncture. The new conventional wisdom about the television debates is they didn't matter a damn. Because if you look at the opinion polls before them, and you look at the opinion polls after, they're roughly the same. Not much happened. Therefore, TV debates didn't matter. Forget them. Don't, don't put them in the histories. I would argue to you that the current government, the coalition, would not exist were it not for the television debates, that Nick Clegg would not be Deputy Prime Minister uh, without the television debates. Now, this is not provable, this is an assertion by me, but let, let, allow me to make it, because it would be interesting to have it challenged. I would argue that there is no way that David Cameron could have contemplated giving a job that big to Nick Clegg unless he'd had the instant and massive exposure that he'd had in those television debates. In a sense, we saw something that is familiar in American politics and not familiar here, that someone can go from totally unknown to major national figure in weeks. Traditionally, because of our parliamentary system and because of the absence of television debates, that doesn't really happen. But Nick Clegg, and forgive me, I haven't done the stats they exist in terms of his recognition level before and after, I with me, but went from, as it were, zero to hero in weeks. And I think had he not, for David Cameron to say, you know what, not only am I going to break with all British precedent and have a coalition, but I'm going to appoint a guy you've never heard of to be Deputy Prime Minister, a sort of obscure third-party leader, would have been difficult. Now, of course, your counter-argument might be television, traditional television coverage would have been quite a big profile to make play, and it would, who worked for previous third-party leaders. But I think the debates altered that quite uh, <coughs> dramatically. Now, um, there was another reason that this was a television election, of course, which is the case of Mrs Duffy and Gordon Brown. It was accidentally a television election, but that was, again, I would argue, a defining moment. Why? Because the Labour Party were beginning to pick up momentum. So it wasn't that Mrs Duffy and Gordon Brown uh, killed Labour, but I think it killed the fact they were in the last week closing and picking up momentum. And if I'm right in both of my assertions, that's quite intriguing. Because it means that um, if Labour had picked up a point or two, and that's all we'd be talking about, we would have been talking of a coalition of a completely different sort, with Gordon Brown potentially still as leader of that coalition, at least in the, in the short term. Um, it could have been worse. Uh, for Gordon Brown. Um, people may remember there have been mishaps in general elections before. Charles Kennedy once uh, took a TV crew uh, around a hospital visit he did and he looked to the man who was a patient and he said, well, are you going to vote? And he said, yes, Mr Kennedy, I think I'm going to vote for you. And he said, very good, what are you in for? And he said, brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
also worth remembering Casey Jack Straw, who went around the old people's home with a television crew and uh, said to the woman, Do you know who I am? And she said, No, dear, but if you ask Matron, she's sure to know. Now, um, in a sense, having just had those quick reflections on the election, and they were quick, there'll be lots of other things you may wish to, to touch on in questions. Let me say, in contrast, the coalition formation process, the five days, showed the limits of television coverage of political events. I mean, having felt, as it were, at the centre of things, I wouldn't want to overstate it, but as a television reporter for the BBC, in the coalition you had that sense that you were constantly, rather like that window over there, through this steamed-up window desperately, and then you discovered the curtains were closed and they'd also got soundproofing. <laughs> My metaphor is merely meant to illustrate the fact that we, I think, totally underestimated the ability of political parties to have secret negotiations. They really were secret. And although we didn't do badly, and I've had to look back at my coverage, which is always a horribly painful experience looking back at things you once said. I had to do it because I did a documentary about the formation of the coalition. And generally I was right, but I was quite often right 24 hours late, by which time I was wrong, of course. And so most classically in the five-day process of the coalition formation, I, on the Tuesday morning, for those who followed the details, the last day when Cameron became Prime Minister, was still saying on the Today programme, and arguing with Paddy Ashdown, it was a memorable moment uh, on the Today programme, about the fact there was still a Lib-Lab possibility. In truth, I think the history is clear. It was in my documentary, I think the two books that have just come out about coalition formation, it was over was dead the night before, but we were on quite a long delay before we found information out. That became clear to us kind of around lunchtime that day. So in a sense, the coalition formation showed the limits of what we do, and it raises the coalition some fascinating questions, which I'm afraid I'm going to raise and not answer, not least because the man who will have to professionally answer them is in the room, Rick Bailey, who works with me at the BBC, who has to manage many of these complex questions about the nature of balance and fairness and impartiality, but it will raise some really tricky questions uh, for Rick to deal with. We already have the complexities in the rules of our coverage of dealing with devolved administrations. Not just what Professor King studied in my world, which is how do you make sure that you take account of in Westminster-based coverage, the fact Wales and Scotland are different, but how are you fair uh, in your coverage? We're about to have a referendum where it won't be between political parties but coalitions of political parties. Uh, the referendum on Peter? On, on uh, the alternative vote, uh, on the change in the voting system. <coughs> we are going to have national elections in Scotland and Wales as well as UK elections for local government. And if we get uh, to a general election in five years' time in which the coalition, in, at least the option of maintaining the coalition, is on the table. What does poor old Rick here, sorry to put your, put your in it, do? I mean, is Nick Clegg giving equal status to the other two leaders or, <laughs> or not? There are some intriguing problems, and I say I raise them rather than solve them, in part because I just wanted to raise one last issue with you before <coughs> shutting up, which is about the complexity of what we do. And it's this, it's the whole issue, as I mentioned at the beginning, of impartiality. And let me just <coughs> read to you the words of an attack, really, on the whole notion of regulated, governed impartiality. This is James Murdoch in his McTaggart lecture in 2009. 
The system, he said, is concerned with imposing what it calls impartiality in broadcast news. Notice those words, what it calls. It should hardly be necessary to point out that the mere selection of stories and their place in the running order is itself a process full of unacknowledged partiality. The effect of the system is not to curb bias, he said. Bias is present in all news media, but simply, he went on to argue, to disguise it. We should be honest about this. It is an impingement on freedom of speech and on the right of people to choose what kind of news they want to watch. And he concluded, would we welcome a world in which the Times was told by the government how much religious coverage it had to carry? There is a word for all this, he says. It's not that the system likes, not one that the system likes to hear, but let's be honest, the right word is authoritarianism. That was James Murdoch's attack on what is not just a law and a regulation, but is a British tradition of the notion of broadcast impartiality and reflected a mindset from, uh, of course, his upbringing in the United States. And it is easy to say, well, look, the United States is different. <coughs> Culturally different. Its traditions are different in the sense of there is no BBC. It is different because its newspapers tend to monopolise individual cities. Uh, there's not much newspaper competition in the US. And they tend to be liberal as well. And there's difference in the sense that the talk show, now big on cable TV, was always big on radio. Uh, and therefore, there's, it's not going to happen here. But there was, let's not forget, in the United States, a change in the law that at least made possible or made easier. There is academic debate as to how important it was. Uh, the shift to the sort of partial TV news that we now see, with Fox News on the right, but don't forget MSNBC on the, on the left, or the liberal wing of politics as well. Uh, a change... Uh, to what was called the Fairness Doctrine, which was implemented by the uh, Federal Communications FCC. Commission. Commission, thank you, brain's gone. Um, in 1949, and was abolished when Ronald Reagan was president. Now, of course, a lot of that argument was something that will never happen here because it was about an impingement on the First Amendment, the uh, constitutional right to free speech. And we don't have that same debate here, but the removal of uh, that fairness doctrine and its requirement to have equal debate did at least liberate, it seems to me, along with technological change, the capacity to have that very partial uh, model <coughs> of broadcasting that we now have in the United States. Uh, Newt Gingrich called the fairness doctrine affirmative action for liberals, <laughs> which I think is a nice phrase. And we know the effect that it's had in the United States, most, I think, acutely as people, uh, if you're British, by watching the debate about healthcare. But I was just going through, uh, thanks to Jessica Selden, who's with me today, to help me do a bit of research on this, um, some of the things that were said on Fox News about healthcare. A Twitter, I'll be hosting a show on Friday, 8pm Eastern, Let's Kill the Bill. Would you let me say that on BBC, Rick? Probably on balance not. Um, and uh, and then a business network, Fox Business Network senior correspondent, who said he would personally vote against the healthcare bill. I mean, I've never told anybody how I would vote on anything at any stage in my career. And he added, who on earth would vote for it? 
<laughs> I mean, it's just, just worth remembering how extraordinary that is for a business correspondent on television to tell you how he'd vote if he was a member of Congress, and then to suggest that no one else could do it. Now, the reason I raise this, I raise it slightly hesitantly. I think there is a British disease, I have to say, and it's an American disease too, to assume that in public policy there's always a choice between the British way and the American way. The debate about healthcare in this country, in my view, has been utterly distorted by the absolutely deluded belief that there are only two ways to run healthcare, a wild free market or, or a socialised medicine in the way of, I mean, of course, ignoring the whole of continental Europe, which is an entirely different model. And I do not wish here to suggest that there is a choice between the sort of screaming rantings of the chat show hosts of the United States on the one hand and honest fairness and decency from the BBC-led model in Britain. I think it would be naive to say that those are the only choices. I think it would be right to say that technology is against the old model. That a world in which not only is there multi-channel but there's convergence between television and the web and therefore it is almost impossible at the moment to distinguish between a television news broadcast which is controlled by uh, the impartiality regulations and the fact that on the next stop on your set-top box is CCTV from the Chinese or Russian television or French or Fox and they just exist. And my children, why should they tell the difference? I know because I grew up in a world with four channels. In fact, I grew up in a world with three channels. <coughs> I remember being in Oxford when Channel 4 came along, we thought it was incredibly exciting. Four channels, bloody hell, what will we do? How will we decide? Um, it was that long ago. Um, and so it seems to me there's an argument about technology. There's an argument about web convergence as well. That means not only will you not be able to distinguish between different channels on your box, but I now uh, am rather in love with my iPad. It's not entirely clear when I'm watching television and when I'm watching something on the web. It's just video. It's just content. And therefore, I, th I hope that this debate that I believe will get going on impartiality is not seen through a narrow prism of are you pro-Murdoch or pro-BBC? Are you pro-Sky? Because it's more important than that. Now, I'm schooled in the BBC school. I am committed uh, for 20 years or more to impartial broadcasting. Let me, let me say to this audience something I probably wouldn't normally say. It's quite a big deal for me because I was politically active as a student. I had views. I'll happily talk to you more about it when the, uh, when the microphone's off in a way. But uh, not because I'm embarrassed about it, but I want to sort of put on the record, has someone who was very actively involved and took a decision to go into broadcast, I did it because I was passionate about the idea of impartial news and impartial broadcasting. And a huge amount of time and energy I do in this job is trying to think, by no means always getting it right, but trying to think, how do we do this fairly? How do we represent ourselves? <coughs> but I, I just want to leave you with this thought, which is that if this general election we've just lived through was the first television election, we can't assume that that's then a model that we'll pursue for many years to come. It could be that future elections are dramatically different if the debate about the regulation of our broadcasting changes. It's an argument we have to have. It's not one that we can just bury our heads in the sand. Thank you very much. Thank you.